Welcome to Wisdom of the Donut Hole, where we dig into backdrops, characters, and plots of more than a dozen books from Ron Walden, author of True to Life Alaska Crime and other Alaska stories. I'm your host, Scott Walden, and yes, Ron Walden is my dad. Wanted to clear up any confusion caused by my narration last episode, where I spoke as a narrator, then as Ron being my dad. Either way, he's my dad, and I'm very proud of him. I, too, grew up in the Silver Valley, experienced those Walden grocery Christmases, the freedoms of living in such a wild place so full of history. It was sad to see the area be devastated by an unmonitored industry, yet it's satisfying to see the transition to what it is today. It's a beautiful place with good people. I got an early start in the 1970s as a firefighter for Shoshone County District 2 in Kellogg. The station had a brass fire pole from the upstairs dorm area that was used many years, even after I left. Wasn't unusual to slide down the pole, bunker up, which means to put your fire gear on, jump on the fire engine's tailboard, and finish buckling your pants, suspenders, and helmet on the road while the siren wailed. The area still had a frontier feel to it. Responded to many incidents in and around the mines and smelters mentioned in Ron's bios. I responded to many friends and family that needed help with fires, accidents, rescues, and medical responses. We even created a fire and arson investigation unit, trained and certified for the job. I learned a lot pretty young. Proud to see now the progress of that department. Beautiful stations with dedicated, well-trained people. The chief was gracious enough to allow me to display a career-long collection of fire engines and other memorabilia in the new station next to Interstate 90, near the gondola we'll talk about later. My grandkids, great-grandkids, and now great-great-grandkids can see them and know where they came from. Around the start of the 1980s when the Superfund issues began to depress the area in so many ways, I also relocated to Alaska, worked in jails and seasonal law enforcement. I returned to firefighting as a member of the City of Kenai Fire Department, retiring after 20-plus years. Responded to structural, aircraft, industrial, and hazmat incidents, conducted fire investigations, public education programs, and provided emergency medical services. I was fortunate to be involved in the design and construction of a regional aircraft fire training center in Kenai in the 1990s. Our department had a great history in establishing statewide fire investigation training and certification programs and statewide public education programs. We even built an impressive mobile fire safety house to provide multilingual information and fire safety training in English and for people speaking indigenous language and Russian. It's been used across Alaska, and we partnered with the very first Safe Kids Child Seat Program and many others. I was just one of many. I was not the one that did all this. I retired as Kenai's Fire Chief many years ago. I'm proud there's an impressive group still there keeping the community safe. In retirement, I was humbled to be recruited to serve as Director of Emergency Management for the Kenai Peninsula Borough in South Central Alaska. More on that area in the coming podcast as it plays a large role in many of Ron's books. Served under several mayors for about a decade, responded to and coordinated recovery and mitigation of damages from numerous disasters, volcanic eruptions, tsunami warnings, earthquakes, floods, terrorist threats, weather emergencies, 
and many man-made disasters are still real seasonal possibilities. Now, I'm just another one of those geezers from the old Moose's Loose Bakery that heads to Ron's most mornings for coffee nowadays. It's a bit embarrassing to talk about oneself like this. One of our sons said, some listeners of the podcast would like to know more about me, so that's that. A couple years ago, my dad Ron and I created Ugly Moose Alaska, sometimes known as Ugly Moose AK. It's a little publishing company for his books. From that came this podcast about the books. We thought it was really important to explain who Ron is and where he came from. Episode 1, Parts 1 and 2, do that. We're learning together and want to give you a sincere thanks for your help as listeners. Last episode, we learned who Ron was. And for the first time, we used our new Wisdom of the Donut Hole theme that was written and performed and provided by Ray Lankford of Ron's old home, Shoshone County, Idaho. This is the Wisdom of the Donut Hole, Episode 1, Part 2. We call this one Idaho Silver Valley. So that's where the heck Ron came from. This podcast is always intended to be about Ron's novels, and it will be. He's a technology-shy guy that loves donuts, friends, coffee, and amazing almost true stories. The podcast name, Wisdom of the Donut Hole, suggests a choice between pessimism and optimism. Ron's always chosen the latter. He's referred to and recited the poem for decades, as encouragement to appreciate what you have. And it goes like this. As you ramble through life, brother, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. It's optimistic like Ron. In this episode, we'll hear where Ron came from with a stroll through Idaho's Silver Valley and some of the area's history, what it's become since the Ron era and how he ended up in Alaska writing books. Even the condensed story of Idaho's Silver Valley is captivating. It has a unique beginning, a defeating collapse, a massive positive transformation, and an amazing resurrection. Historical figures explored here. American history was made here. The people of the Silver Valley proved they're made from pretty tough stuff. They never quit. They found opportunities to succeed like Ron did. The Silver Valley's historical influences are reflected in Ron's story, style, and characters. His sense of humor and optimism reflect where he came from, an area with a colorful history with highlights found in this episode, including the Silver Valley's hungry, unusual, accidental founding father, what a jackass, Noah Kellogg and his jackass Bill, an okay corral connection amid Idaho's huckleberry patches, Wyatt Earp and Brother Jim bring peace, roads, and a circus tent to the first county seat. A kind-hearted madam, Molly B. Dam, risks her life for others more than once, and she's not forgotten. An explosive collision between industrialists and workers brings boomtown violence, Pinkerton agents, and martial law, including the famous lawman, cowboy, and undercover detective pioneer, Pinkerton agent Charlie Seringo. Well-known cowboy from Texas, the famous Wild West lawman with an Alaska connection, Probably as a result of his undercover success in Idaho, Seringo would be dispatched to Treadwell Gold Mine in Douglas, Alaska near Juneau due to similar mining strife. He went on to author many books about his adventurous life. All are worth a read. The Pacific Northwest version of Love Canal. The Silver Valley earned the creepy moniker Superfund site. It was a two-edged sword that nearly destroyed the area before resurrecting it. No longer a garbage pail kid, the valley's reborn as a highly desirable recreational gold mine. 
a story of resilience and recovery. Mines prosper again, rivers run clear again, mountains have trees again, and that fog is now just fog. It's no longer smelt or smoke, as in the days of Ron's youth. The Rails to Trails program rises to recreational prominence with the death of the railroads and birth of bike trails. And the longest gondola in North America takes recreation and tourism to a higher level. All in this episode, you'll hear how it happened in the story of the Idaho stomping grounds of Alaska's true-to-life crime author Ron Walden and what became of North Idaho's Silver Valley after he moved on. Beginning next episode, we'll delve into his books, characters, and plots. Some influenced by history he grew up around, but they're all deeply Alaskan. Right now, welcome to Kellogg, Idaho, in the heart of the Silver Valley. The Historical Marker Database claims to have bite-sized bits of local, national, and global history. Historical Marker 290s in Kellogg at the intersection of West Cameron and Bunker Avenues, less than a half mile from the site of Ron's grocery store, the old family store Walden's Grocery. That database and an October 2020 KTVB-TV Boise report by Danny Alsop about Kellogg and Bill are some of the sources used here. A prospector's donkey stumbled upon what would become Bunker Hill Mine. That led to the founding of the city of Kellogg, a small town at the base of a ski area that probably wouldn't have been founded if not for a hungry jackass named Bill. In 1885, Noah Kellogg came to the area grub-staked by businessmen in Murray, Idaho with food and Bill the donkey. Bill wandered from camp one September night. Kellogg searched the wilderness a couple weeks looking for Bill. Two miles south in an area later called Wardner, he found Bill grazing on grass near an obvious lead ore deposit called Galena. Bill the jackass was dining atop what would become the world-famous Bunker Hill and Sullivan Mine founded by Noah Kellogg with partners Phil O'Rourke and Jim Wardner. Wardner became a partner mainly because his water claim was needed to mine Bunker Hill. He later founded Wardner, Idaho, and also Wardner, British Columbia in Canada. The city of Kellogg incorporated 22 years later. After a century producing tens of millions of tons of metals, Bunker was forced to close in 1981, putting thousands out of work, decimating the tax base, and leaving massive lead contamination area-wide. Bill's legacy lives on. In 1967, Jackass Ski Bowl, named in honor of Bill, opened near the mine. In 1973, Jackass went bankrupt and was sold and renamed Silverhorn. In 1990, it changed names again and is known today as Silver Mountain Resort. The city of Kellogg holds true to its donkey discovered destiny. Its welcome sign and even postcards tout being founded by a jackass and still inhabited by its descendants. Noah Kellogg trekked from the county seat of Murray to the Silver Valley to find less prospected areas. He may have even bumped into Molly Bedam, maybe even the Earp brothers, before leaving town with Bill. Molly Bedam in Murray, Idaho. A 2019 story by Milana Marcinich provides insight into Molly's history. Show notes link the full article and other works by the author. A Hero's Act Molly Bedam was Idaho's best-known madam and local folk hero. In 1884, she joined a pack train crossing Thompson Pass to Murray, Idaho during a blizzard. 
Partway over the pass, she risked her life to help a mother and child struggling to keep up. She sat him on a horse with her. Not dressed for the cold, Molly was concerned for their safety. She found a rough shelter where she holed up with the mother and child, telling the pack train to go on. She'd catch up in the morning. The pack train left, not expecting to see Molly, the mother, or child ever again. Draped in Molly's furs and warmest clothes, they huddled together to stay warm until the blizzard passed. Next morning, they rode into Murray on Molly's horse. She ordered food and a place to stay for the mother and child. She paid the bill and earned instant admiration. She'd likely save the mother and child's lives. Turning down an offer for a hotel room, she announced that she'd be taking up residence in cabin number one. That was the cabin reserved for madams that appeared in the mining, logging, and railroad towns. When Noah Kellogg's partner, Phil O'Rourke, asked her name, she replied with her married name, Molly Burdan. The marriage failed, but she'd kept the name. She spoke with a strong Irish brogue, and O'Rourke thought she said, Molly be damn, rather than Burdan. The name stuck to become part of Silver Valley history. Molly was born Maggie Hall in Dublin, Ireland in 1853. She left home at age 20 aboard a boat to America. It was rough in America, not at all what she had planned. By 1884, she'd already been traveling western states as a high-end prostitute for years. When she arrived in Murray, people welcomed her with open arms. She finally found a home. Molly was the proverbial prostitute with a heart of gold. She cared for the sick, returned stolen goods, fed the poor, and contributed to charitable causes. Legend says she took good care of the women who worked for her and treated them fairly. Her last great deed happened in 1886 when a stranger rode into town. He drank whiskey and fell over dead as smallpox after exposing the entire town. Soon others were dying. While most folks stayed inside to avoid illness, Molly tended the sick. She rallied the women working for her and lectured the town people, telling them to care for each other and not hide inside. With O'Rourke, she cleared out the hotel for use as a makeshift hospital. She worked tirelessly caring for the sick with little sleep or food. Many died, but she saved many others. The people of Murray still honor her with Molly Be Damned Days every August. It said Maggie Hall came to America, a Catholic, no-nonsense girl full of wit and charm. She turned bad luck and compassion into a business. She was a good neighbor. You can still get to Murray over Thompson Pass from Wallace. Just follow the route Molly Burdan took to become Molly Be Damned. Wyatt Earp Business in Idaho by Casey Teffertiller, October 2018. HistoryNet.com is the source used here. Show notes has more information. Saloon owner and lawman turned road builder. Most of Idaho's panhandle was settled by Lemhi Shoshone Indians. Sacagawea, who guided Lewis and Clark from North Dakota across Idaho in 1804 and 05, was of that same tribe. Miners found gold near the Clearwater River in 1860. That gold rush continued through 1875. Among prospectors going north for gold was A.J. Pritchard. He found gold in the creeks near Murray, Idaho in 1883. Later that year, prospectors in Burke Canyon near Wallace found gold in Canyon Creek. That was soon followed by hard rock miners cutting drifts into mountains for other precious ores. Dozens of mines and processing mills opened. 
a rail line along the Coeur d'Alene River's south fork hauled people, equipment, and ore. Families migrated to the area. Trees were stripped from hills. Air became hazy and rivers mucky with mine tailings. Most flat ground was buried under blasted rock and waste. The string of towns near mines became known as the Silver Valley. Even legends like Wyatt Earp needed to make a living. That's exactly what brought Wyatt and his brother James to Coeur d'Alene Territory. They landed in Murray and Idaho Territory during the 1884 gold rush, prepared to make money. They brought a circus tent 45 feet high and 50 feet across to serve as a dance hall they'd call the White Elephant Saloon. The Coeur d'Alene Weekly called it the largest, finest saloon in the Coeur d'Alene's. The herbs served the most basic needs, barrels of whiskey to lubricate thirsty miners and swirling women to keep them entertained. The herbs settled in, running the saloon and taking on other duties. Wyatt was appointed deputy sheriff of Kootenai County, a complex situation as the district was claimed by both Kootenai and Shoshone County since the legislature hadn't determined any boundaries yet. The job definitely had its risks. In March 1884, two groups of men disputed property ownership and chose guns over courts. The Spokane Falls Review reported about 50 shots were fired before Jim and Wyatt stepped in, writing, With characteristic coolness, they stood where bullets from both parties flew about them. They joked with participants upon their poor marksmanship, and although they pronounced the affair a fine picture, used their best endeavors to stop the shooting. Shoshone County Deputy Sheriff Hunt arrived shortly to quiet the battle. He encouraged both sides to have a smoke and reach an understanding. The only casualty was an onlooker shot through the fleshy part of a leg. Decades later, researcher Tom Galmer discovered Wyatt Earp had become a road builder during his short stay. Access over Montana's Thompson Falls Trail took too long to ship goods to Murray. Earp decided a quicker route was in order. In May of 1884, Earp's crew cut a trail to the Montana Trout Creek Rail Stop, establishing the shortest route to Murray. Earp's trail moved supplies faster, cutting days off travel time. The side benefit? Miners wouldn't be separated from the Earp's barrels of whiskey as long. Soon, Earp and partner Jack Enright escorted 200 ounces of gold over the trail to Helena, Montana. The mining boom fizzled fast in 1884. No records indicate how long Earp was in Idaho. He's identified in New Mexico Territory in December 1884. He must have left before the snow hit the Coeur d'Alene's. Wyatt later found his way to Nome, Alaska as a business owner during Nome's Gold on the Beach rush. Then he sailed south to California to live out his days. Ron Walden wrote a novel about a fifth-generation descendant of Earp. Wyatt Earp V, Alaska Bush Guardian, is imagined as a modern, fictional village public safety officer in remote Alaska. We'll explore the settings and people in that novel, Wyatt Earp V, Alaska Bush Guardian, very soon. The string of towns near mines became known as the Silver Valley. The Silver Valley labor unrest, natural calamities, workplace tragedies, and environmental injuries would become unmatched by any other region in the U.S., maybe even the world. A vicious war between miners and owners over pay, safety, and unionization lasted from the 1880s through the 1890s. Bombings, kidnappings, and murders were common until quelled under martial law. An Idaho governor was assassinated in 1905 by a bomb. 
Union organizers were charged with murder, but acquitted in 1907. Owner Cabal's, the Dynamite Express, Pinkerton's, and Martial Law were all volatile components of two major uprisings as workers struggled with high risk and low pay. In 1892, a pioneer of the art of being an undercover detective, Charlie Seringo, was discovered by the Union as an undercover spy in their midst. Sympathetic to miners' plights, yet loyal to employers, Seringo's efforts seemed to help reduce strife, at least in the short term. Owners reduced pay to offset increased operating costs and increased work hours. Miners went on strike for a living wage for everyone working underground in any position. In Burke Canyon, the strike turned into a shooting war between miners and companies. To restore order, Governor Willie declared martial law. He sent federal troops to arrest and detain miners. Dozens of casualties were incurred, including six deaths and the total destruction of the Frisco Mill. In 1899, a confrontation arose with the Union organizing at mines not yet unionized. Bunker Hill, Sullivan miners earned up to a dollar less a day than others. On April 29th in Burke Canyon, 250 Union members seized a train at gunpoint. At each stop, more miners boarded the Dynamite Express. Arriving at Bunker Hill Mine near Warner, miners carried 3,000 pounds of dynamite into the mill, completely destroying it. They set fire to the company office, the boarding house, and the home of the mine manager. As in the 1892 strike, Governor Frank Stunenberg declared martial law again. Arrests and mass incarcerations were used to return order. By 1903, Burke Canyon was the most developed mining region in the Coeur d'Alene's. After World War II, the district had 34 concentrating mills and 24 mines. During the 1970s, nearly half the nation's silver production was from the Silver Valley. After a century of mining and smelting, Operations were severely curtailed in the early 1980s, resulting in massive unemployment and population loss. On top of economic difficulties, the valley had enormous environmental challenges. Amidst all the mining strife, the Great Fire of 1910 raged through the area. Ed Pulaski, a Forest Service Ranger in Wallace, who was also a descendant of Polish nobleman and American Revolutionary War General, Casimir Pulaski would become a hero and then an inventor. One of the deadliest fires in U.S. history burned three million acres in Idaho and Montana. It destroyed much of Wallace, Kellogg, and other Silver Valley towns that killed 87 people. Pulaski is credited with saving all but five of his 45-man crew during the big blow-up. He led his crew to the safety of an abandoned prospector's mine. All but five firefighters survived. Pulaski was burned and severely injured, maimed for life. The mine entrance to the Pulaski Tunnel is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In 1911, Pulaski invented the Pulaski Tool, a wildland firefighting hand tool in use today. Milwaukee Railroad engineers saved about 600 folks from the same flames by stopping their trains in the safety of long tunnels during the fire. Those tunnels are now part of the Rails to Trails hiking and biking program that we'll talk about later in this podcast. The Sunshine Mine Disaster The disaster began on day shift, May 2, 1972, 
resulting in carbon monoxide poisoning deaths of 91 men. The mine closed for seven months after the fire. It was one of the worst mining disasters in American history, and absolutely the worst in Idaho's history. One of Ron's in-laws and several friends were killed that day. Two friends were the only survivors. The memorial found at the intersection of Silver Road with Interstate 90 at the mouth of Big Creek Canyon is a moving tribute to those men and their families. The Superfund Site Designation This designation was decades in the making. Bunker Hill's lead smelter air pollution control equipment failed in the 1970s, but smelting continued for years in spite of the failed systems. Contamination of air, water, and soil was bad. Human lead levels soared with concentrations affecting central nervous systems. In 1981, federal agencies began to address health risks. Inspectors combed the mines for violations. Global markets capsized and Bunker Hill's lead operations closed, eliminating 2,000 jobs. The valley's population, employment, income, and prospects collapsed. Over 6,000 people, a full third of the county population, simply left. For years, North Idaho led unemployment, poverty, suicide, and hit the bottom of income charts. Uncontrolled processes ignited the era of the designated Superfund site. Superfund was a federal, industrial, and local effort to create economic, health, and environmental priorities. In 1983, the Silver Valley became one of the nation's first Superfund sites, one of the country's largest, most complex, and expensive projects. Polluters were compelled to clean up after themselves under strict supervision and guidelines. Forty years later, the project expanded from 21 square miles to over 1,500 square miles of mine sites and sediments full of heavy metals. Lead contamination was scraped from 3,500 properties in and around the city of Kellogg. Residential yards were excavated, while work continued to identify and stop seepage of toxic metals into watersheds of the Coeur d'Alene River and Lake Coeur d'Alene. The massive project met local resistance because of sheer scale, immense cost, and new, barely understood science. The intrusive presence of federal managers was viewed as demoralizing, curbing new development with a stigma of toxicity. The results, though, were impressive. Communities of Kellogg, Wallace, Coeur d'Alene, and Harrison are thriving now. Restoration returned the area to healthy, natural habitat. Success is seen with the return of tundra swans, even pelicans and fish. Mountains have trees. A thriving lumber industry exists, and clear water fills rivers and lakes. Along with mining, the Silver Valley forged a future on recreational tourism and light manufacturing. The Rails to Trails Hike and Bike Successes The Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's Hiking and Biking Trails opened in 2004. On the route of an old Union Pacific rail line, it's one of the nation's finest Rails to Trails assets. The 73-mile route is smooth asphalt for all abilities. It winds through mountains from Mullen, Idaho, in the historic Silver Valley, into Chain Lakes regions. Then along the shore of Lake Coeur d'Alene over historic Chat Collette Bridge, and ends with a climb up the northern Palouse Prairie and onto Plummer, Idaho. Trail users can continue along a bike path in Washington to Spokane. Mountains, forests, farms, wetlands, rivers, 
and lakes line the entire beautiful route. The other rail-to-trail success, the route of the Hiawatha, the crown jewel of rail-to-trail adventure, starts through the 1.6-mile Taft Tunnel along the mountain crest at Lookout Pass Ski Area. This family-friendly trail is easily enjoyed by all ages and abilities. In the late 1800s, Milwaukee Railroad expanded west to gain the West Coast markets and the Pacific Rim trade. 9,000 men from across the world built the extension between 1906 and 1911. Freight and passenger service began in July of 1909 and settlements sprouted up all around it. The last passenger train, the Olympian Hiawatha, passed through in 1961. The last train west of Butte, Montana passed through in 1980. After that, the rail line was abandoned. The route of the Hiawatha is now a scenic mountain bike and hike trail 15 miles long with 10 large dark train tunnels nine that you ride your bike through, and The Longest Gondola in North America by Chad Albright, www.itstartedoutdoors.com, is an info source used here, and there's more information in the show notes. Amazing tourism and recreation. Mountaineering's not for everyone, but that doesn't mean you can never reach a summit and breathe clean alpine air. Luckily, the gondola lift exists, based to summit in minutes. Idaho's been on the forefront of alpine technology since the 1900s. The first ever ski lift was installed in Sun Valley. A hundred years later, Idaho continues to make life easier for skiers and sightseers with the longest gondola in North America on Silver Mountain in the small town of Kellogg, Idaho. When the mining industry collapsed, Kellogg turned to tourism and recreation as new resources. In 1990, Silver Mountain Resort was built next to Interstate 90 and the longest gondola in North America opened. At about three miles, the ride to the top takes a little over 30 minutes. It's smooth, relaxing, and definitely exciting. Silver Mountain has 67 ski runs for all skill levels. For winter lovers with no sports ability, there's a tubing park at the top next to the gondola. Summer concerts sometimes happen at the mountaintop, and bike trails are open in the summer on downhill trails. If you just want to ride the longest gondola in North America for incredible views, ask for a scenic ride ticket. Maybe unadvertised, but if it's available, it's a cheaper option than a ski pass. Trails and paths range from easy to extreme. This nearly sums up the area where Ron Walden grew up and raised his family, and the changes he saw in the economy and related opportunities, or lack thereof, Superfund site to recreational heaven, the Earp Brothers to Molly Madame, Pinkerton agents to martial law. History has always been of interest to Ron as reflected in his books with insight and descriptions of settings. Everyone, including Ron, had to drive Interstate 90, often mentioned in these episodes. It was originally the route of the Mullen Trail, engineered and built under supervision of John Mullen, a soldier and civil servant. An 1852 military academy graduate, a surveyor, a road builder, explorer, and even a participant in the Coeur d'Alene War of 1858. Wikipedia describes the war as the second phase of the Yakima War, a series of encounters by allied Native American tribes of Washington, Idaho, and Montana, where the tribes defeated U.S. Army forces. North Idaho College developed near a lumber mill on the north shore of Lake Coeur d'Alene at its outflow into the Spokane River. 
The campus encompassed an army fort renamed for General William Tecumseh Sherman of Civil War fame. Sherman recommended the site after an inspection tour in 1877. It became Fort Coeur d'Alene in 1879 and was renamed Fort Sherman in 1887, just a few years after his retirement. The fort was unoccupied during the Spanish-American War in 1898 and was soon abandoned after that. Fort Sherman is now part of the campus of North Idaho College. Moving north in the early 1970s to a territory only designated a state in 1959 and so important to the nation, Alaska gave Ron a new opportunity to witness history. He contributed to development and security of the Alaska Pipeline, working at pump stations in the remotest areas of Alaska, and he drove long-haul supply runs between Fairbanks and Dead Horse during the Alaska Pipeline construction days. Oil was discovered in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska in 1968. The 48-inch wide steel pipe was ordered from Japan in 1969. U.S. manufacturers simply didn't have the capacity at the time. Legal and environmental issues delayed construction about another five years. Pre-construction work began during 1973 and 74. This phase included camps for workers, road construction and bridges where none had ever existed. Construction along a carefully planned right-of-way, avoiding difficult river crossings and wildlife habitats took place between 1975 and 1977. The United States needed a domestic oil source due to steep rises in foreign oil prices. The pipeline filled that need. As the economy and environment in the Silver Valley hit an all-time low, Ron saw opportunities in Alaska in the early 1970s. The Prudhoe Bay oil boom and its construction jobs, with improved pay, created the real possibility of a renewed life, with a home near a salmon-filled river in Alaska as part of that new start. He was hired by a guy named Fuzzy to work as a carpenter. Later, Ron drove long hauls to the oil fields of Prudhoe Bay, part of the workforce that built the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. 800 miles long and 48 inches in diameter, it's a true feat of engineering. Engineers overcame extreme sub-zero cold and even high temperatures across much of the pipeline's route through the last frontier. The process considered expansion and contraction of materials and soils. It adopted and even created unique designs and processes for pipe fitting, welding, insulation, stabilization, protection of wildlife and migration routes, and other environmental concerns. The rise and fall of permafrost, the permanently frozen subsoils in the Arctic, along with the warmth and weight of slow-moving crude oil, were major obstacles also overcome. Twelve pump stations along the 800-mile route were built to successfully flow the crude oil. Many years later, after retirement from the Alaska Department of Corrections, Ron provided security at a couple pump stations, places he may have even hauled pipe to during construction in the 70s. There were hundreds of miles of feeder pipes. A terminal was built in Valdez, Alaska to store crude and load large tankers for distribution to refineries. High wages, long hours, free housing and camps attracted tens of thousands of workers from all walks of life. The first barrel of oil traveled the pipeline during the summer of 1977. Full-scale production went live by the end of that year. In a future podcast, we'll have more pipeline history and episodes about Cinchnot, Ron Walden's very first book. 
The goal of these first episodes has been to familiarize readers with Ron and to explain who he is and where the heck he came from, to establish the flow of future podcasts based on his many books. Until the next episode, where we look at people, places, wildlife, and history in Ron's latest book, The Fishing Hole, an Alaska Bear Tale, remember these things. The wisdom of the donut hole, it's optimistic. The Moose's Loose Bakery is where this storytelling began. National Donut Day because, well, donuts. And that random day every fall when a new Ron Walden book is released. His new novel, The Fishing Hole, an Alaska Bear Tale, is on sale wherever books are sold, including your hometown bookstores and online. Ask for them if you don't see them. Episode 2 is going to delve into this new novel for a front and center look at locations, people, wildlife, and history that made the story possible. And that book's amazing cover, well, that has a story of its own. Then we intend to return to the very beginning with his very first novel from 1996, Cinch Knot, Pigs, Politics, and Petroleum, the multinational plot to nuke the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. We plan to release new episodes monthly, more frequently as we can. Check your favorite podcast platform for updates and new episodes. We're found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube, Samsung, iHeart, Audible, and more. Please subscribe and like our programs. Order your books today. Check out ronwalden.com for a look at covers and a synopsis of each book. I'm your host, Scott Walden. Thank you for listening. Read Ron's books and visit Alaska. Podcast episodes and show notes are posted at wisdomofthedonutholeblog.blogspot.com. Special thanks to Ray Lankford for the show's new theme music titled The Wisdom of the Donut Hole Theme, an instrumental written, performed, and provided with permission by Ray Lankford of Shoshone County, Idaho. Look for more of Ray's music on his website, Ray Langford Music and Writing. Thanks for listening.